0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program has been brought to you by Hearst Ranch, the nation's largest single-source supplier of free-range, all-natural, grass-fed, and grass-finished beef. For more information, visit HearstRanch.com. Broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.org.
2: Greenhorn's Radio, very exciting because this is the first time we've had someone back on the radio for a second episode, which I think is going to be a new thing. And we in Greenhorn World have been doing a lot more strange audio audio projects. I got an audio recorder and have been traveling around lately with my friend Dan recording uh, and Brendan recording mm-hmm. work songs for our new uh, Greenhorns Almanac, which is coming out on December 20th, and there's some previews of those work songs and songs about keeping bees and things like that up on our Almanac site, which is part of Greenhorns' website. So the audio experience, the audio odyssey, is is unraveling, unfurling. Hey, Anastasia, how hot is it there? It's plenty hot. Can you explain in some numerical fashion about what that means.
3: Oh God, I don't know. I at this point in the season, I don't really pay much attention. It's it's over a hundred degrees probably, and uh, it's humid. It's rained just enough to make it humid, which of course makes the um, makes the heat a little bit harder to bear. But hey. That's what we sign up for here. So there's no use complaining.
2: No use complaining. So let's talk about the kinds of farming that happens in Arizona that can handle this heat. Last time we spoke, we spoke a lot about your experience in farm work uh, in your early career. And we didn't talk that much about um, the kind of economic or the, whatever, the agricultural economy of Arizona and dry land farming. And I thought that might be a good way to uh, contextualize your work in rangeland management. So, maybe just like, a little overview.
3: Okay, Uh, well, I'm certainly not an expert on that, um, on the agricultural economy of my great state of Arizona, but... Okay, you're an expert.
2: we're all
3: greenhorns. Okay. Yeah, we're all greenhorns. So um, I'll be a greenhorn and uh, tell you that uh, for the most part, the commercial agriculture of the state, I think, has um, mostly to do with cotton, uh, some citrus, um, and then a lot of I think probably the biggest agricultural area as far as um, crop agriculture in the state is down in the Colorado River Valley, around the Yuma area, and that's where your iceberg lettuce might come from. Um, They grow a lot of alfalfa and hay as well, although I think recently uh, people have been growing a lot less hay in favor of crops like cotton. So this is all pretty water-intensive stuff we're talking about, probably not the most appropriate for the, uh, for the amount of water that we really have available to us. And I guess it seems to me that there really isn't any dry land farming on any large scale going on in Arizona because they, they irrigate the land so it isn't dry anymore. So how, can you, how could you even say that that counts?
2: Well, and then, of course, when you have all these plants growing, we've been seeing here all the corn is growing so tall and the rivers are dropping, and I just think, wow, think about, you know, all these corn plants are just transpiring away and sucking water out of the ground, and, you know, it's not that I resent them, but uh, it's definitely an impact that plants have on, uh, on the groundwater and on the transpiration rate so when you're but when you're from a grower's perspective, being in a place with low humidity uh to grow dry like to grow lettuce and stuff, I know they have a lot less disease pressure um because of it being so dry,
3: yeah, sure, um yeah, definitely, and then you know so there's there's a couple of limiting factors for plant growth, one of them is sunshine in some places. Um, you know, and another one is water. We got plenty of sunshine, and if you can enough water on the plants, you know, with the limited number of, um, frost days that we actually have, I mean, it's a really long growing season, and, and desert soils are actually really productive soils. Um, they're really young soils, so there's a lot of, um... You know nutrients in them and stuff like that. So, you know, if you can if you can overcome that water hurdle, which I think we've really fooled ourselves into thinking we've done, you can definitely have a lot of productivity.
2: But the kind of the kind of farming that you're getting involved in is not crop, is not irrigation uh, heavy, and that has to do with managed range for beef production and for cattle. Uh, do you want to give a little background? Do you want to give just say explain what you're studied in school and and what's going on in terms of ranching?
3: Well, I can try from you know my limited experience. Uh, well, I mean, essentially, you know, <clears throat> there's there's a long tradition, relatively long as far as, you know, the age of our great nation is concerned, history of ranching in the Southwest, and, of course, also the Spanish and the Mexicans were doing it prior to Anglo settlement as well. Um, You know, it's... uh, Raising animals and livestock on an arid landscape is something that you can do without enormous inputs of water, without plowing, without um, altering the landscape. Of course, also the impacts of livestock can and do alter the landscape um, when that livestock isn't being managed in a sustainable or sensitive way. Um, So it's it's not as though... (laughs) It's not as though it's an easy solution. It's just, you know, something that's been done here in the past. It's continuing to happen and, you know, is really what people do to get an agricultural product out of arid regions all over the world. Um, so, so, anyhow, uh, what, what else would you like me to say about it?
2: Well, so we're talking about raising beef in the cowboy manner uh, on unmanaged or, or minimally managed uh, landscape that's arid
3: or minimally and altered perhaps.
2: Minimally yeah. altered um, So minimally altered, but not minimally managed. So what is the management what are the management needs? And, and right now, what are people managing for this time of year to, to keep their animals?
3: Healthy and as happy as possible in such heat. Well, <laughs> I think I think you know people are really. This is a time of year when, uh, well, there's there's definitely significant parts of the state that have gotten a good share of rain right now. Um, Tucson hasn't per se. Uh, You know, the early part of the summer before the rains come is is a really, really hard time for everybody out there, um, including the animals, and I think that, um, you know, the the drought has put everybody in a worse position to uh, get through this rough time of the year, and... So I would imagine that there's a lot of people worrying about water, worrying about the condition of their tanks, um, and, and worrying about having enough forage. Maybe people have had to supplement with a little bit of hay. And now that the rains have come, you know, depending... Usually what happens during the monsoon season is that the rains come with a vengeance, and you know, you can get really large amount of rainfall in a short amount of time, and rather than that soaking into the soil and really feeding and, uh, you know, helping the plants, it just sort of causes runoff, and so you're like in a flood one minute, and then it's all gone the next minute along with all your topsoil. So it's kind of like a mixed blessing sometimes when the rain comes. Um, and then, of course, too, it'll take a while for the plants to recover and to grow and put on, you know, new forage for the livestock, even after the rains do come. So, so I I would imagine that those are kind of the the things that are going on out on the range right now. And you know, the heat is really stressful really stressful i think for for everybody during this time of year
2: so there's been this drought and um un, and kind of unusual weather which has led to uh, an increase in the price of hay across the west and southwest and yeah. as a result of that increased price of hay we've seen historic uh drop in stock stock rates of beef uh-huh. and people were, like reading their herds, and as a result of that, an increase in the price of beef and also in the percentage of beef that we have here in, in the U.S. that's coming from um, Canada and Mexico. Uh-huh. Um, and I know also that we had something that, just, that you, and you don't have to reflect on all of this, but if any of it you know more than, than I'm saying, then that means that you know more than me because I'm Really on the edge of my awareness here, but uh, that we just finally passed uh, this sort of legislation called country of origin labeling, which would tell consumers where the animal comes from that they're eating. Uh-huh. Which is common in all the European countries, but then um, in the World Trade Organization, China. Uh, shot it down and said, no, you can't pass that country of origin labeling because that is basically a trade barrier for uh, food foodstuffs from China. So right. it's very interesting that, you know, we used to be the big bully. Uh, you know, we, America, have been traditionally the big bully, but that now there's a new big bully in the room, um, and, and that China is exporting agricultural products to us and we're exporting to them, but they're very aware that. Um, consumers have a mistrust of uh, ag products from China. Right. But, but what do you know about the the Mexican beef situation?
3: Um. Well, the. I mean, I'm. I guess my most. You know, my area of the most familiarity would be with Sonora, um, which is a state just south of Arizona, and that's where uh, my friend has. His family has two ranches, and beef is big there. I mean, and the last time, well, you know, beef is big there, and a lot of calves that are raised in Sonora get sold to the U.S., and a lot of them, you know, they might be used as stock or cattle on a few ranches in Arizona or, you know, some other state nearby, but, you know, most of those animals, and I have to also, you know, add that a lot of the animals that are on ranches, the calves that are being produced on ranches in Arizona, they're destined for the feedlots in Kansas. Um, so there's certain trade restrictions about, you know, the size and the weight of the animals that are allowed to be imported from Mexico. Um there's a certain penalty for you know selling animals over a certain size, a sort of price penalty, which I don't know that much about, but I hear people talking about and complaining that it um, really causes a serious disadvantage to the ranchers in Mexico. Um, and then, you know, last time I was actually on the, well, not that I frequent this website, but I did happen to stumble onto the... Uh, Sonoran Cattlemen's Association website not that long ago, and they were talking about exporting their beef to Asia. So, I mean, they've really, like, maxed out the market that they have with the amount that they produce, and they're they're shipping their products overseas. And, you know, a lot of of stuff in Arizona, I think, is going over to places like Korea and, and things like that as well. So stuff's going all over the place. It, it really blows my mind. And, um, and I, you know, it's really nothing new if you think back to people's attitudes about food and novelty and, and you know, what they want. People have always gone to really great extremes and great pains to uh, trade and import products from faraway places. You know, certainly in Asia, they don't have the the land base where they can raise a lot of livestock. So I think the live animals that we ship over there, they just, you know, feed them in feedlots, probably on grain, a lot of which is imported, you know. And then they, you know, they kill them and they cut them up and they feed them to people, <laughs> Everybody wants that nowadays, so...
2: Everybody everybody wants the Kobe beef.
3: Yeah. The Kobe beef or, you know, a hamburger or whatever, you know. It's, um, I mean, I haven't been over to Asia in a long time. I went one time several years ago, and, I mean, I think it would be amazing to go and see what people are eating these days. Who knows, Right. Probably be in Beijing and go to freaking Golden Corral buffet or something at this point.
2: Well, I don't. I know that there is a strong, strong export market of American crops and specialty, especially specialty crops like blueberries
3: Uh, in Asia.
2: There was recently a big scandal of uh, contamination of blueberries were contaminated with uh, what's it called? Or uh, no, I've forgotten it. A, anyway, it's a it's a fungicide, and apparently the Japanese levels of tolerance are eight times. You can have eight times stronger. It's eight times. It's less. It's like point two, where ours is is um is eight parts per million, something that. Right. And and so they are now testing all the loads, and it's. You know, people are having to delay their blueberries by a week and a half, which is a very long time for blueberries to be in cold storage before getting on a boat to Japan. And yeah. It is called to mind, you know, that we we in the United States spend a lot of money subsidizing our agricultural system, and then we're sending, and a lot of it is environmentally uh, damaging, the practices that, you know, ensue, and then we're sending it all abroad abroad. Uh, Meanwhile, you know, it would be great if more kids in school lunch programs were eating blueberries, you know, and that people had access to these specialty, especially the specialty vegetables, you know, vegetables. (laughs) Vegetables and fruits are especially needed um, for a healthy diet.
3: Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, Yeah, those are the blueberries that I used to go up there and rake. (laughs) And I remember... uh, I remember a few times these people from Japan coming to tour the blueberry fields and and my dog chased one of them, and um, it was memorable. But, uh, you know, I I guess it all comes down to economics, right? And um, uh, I don't like the way the economics um, and the free markets and the kind of capitalism that we have sort of... uh, dictates the way things are going to happen. And I don't know. Nothing in my education has really totally clarified that issue for me of like, okay, is it really necessary for us to do things this way? Is this like really the best way for things to work or do we need to exercise, you know, ethics? Uh, you know, our ethics and our morals and our, you know, certain standards and impose them on the economic system. I mean, it just never seems to end up working that way. But, um, you know, uh, so I'm not sure. I'm not sure what to say on that. It, it all seems like a really intimidating kind of a beast to um, to try and change and but you know what it comes down to a lot of it is you know up there in maine they're growing so many frickin' blueberries that you know they have to find some place for them to go because that's what they're doing they're totally specializing in those blueberries on those fields and you know that's probably one of the few and best things that they can grow there so of course they're going to want to do that and exploit that but You know, when we have these sort of monoculture, monocrop systems, I think we're bound to end up in a situation where we have to do strange and oftentimes unsustainable things with the end product in order to, you know, maintain or to justify that kind of agriculture.
2: So it's like we're locked in once once you specialize and once all the equipment is there and all the expertise is there and it's so specialized, you're locked into this export model and transitioning to a more regional or regionally oriented or diverse uh, or direct market type model is a, is a real challenge.
3: Yeah. I mean, face it, the kids of Maine and the East or, you know, the world in general are going to need more than blueberries. They probably need, like, blueberries and carrots and apples and eggs and milk and, you know, a lot of other things. Um, And I think usually the source for all that stuff ends up being, you know, these scattered monocultures that are all over the place, you know, where everything gets shipped around. These people are expert egg producers, and so we buy their eggs, and they buy our blueberries and, you know... I don't know.
2: I don't like it. Like being locked in structurally, I felt, you know, our experience with this farm bill and, you know, National Young Farmers Coalition partnered with NSAC to make this beginning farmer and rancher opportunity act. And, you know, basically we learned how to write legislative language that would support programs to help young farmers and not help like, not, like, give them free land and give them free money, but have programs that provide business training and have low-interest loans and uh, land-linking support and, you know, conservation practices and poop house grant, all these things that are, like, really obvious um, and useful aids to transitioning agriculture forward to the next generation. And what we we expect... And that would seem to me to be, like, you know, uncontroversially needed,
0: you know, if yeah. half
2: of the farmers in America are over the age of 55. And, but there you are sitting, you know, on the, on the, there's your legislation and the programs you like and support sitting there on the page in front of the representative next to the commodity programs. And, and what do they cut? They cut, they, they're, they're no, no hesitation, you know, they cut, they cut, they cut, they cut our programs because they're so, uh, it's such an entrenched system, uh, and the, and the advocates for the price supports for the big commodity crop have bought themselves such a, have bought themselves such strong representation.
3: Right. Sure. Yeah, the people are not in control of, um of the system anymore, and, um, you know, really the only way I see of taking it back is from a grassroots level, and people, um, you know, I mean, frankly, I don't know what to do about a lot of that stuff, and if I personally were out there doing what you're doing, Severin, (laughs) and challenging and battling all of that, I would probably lose it, and I would probably not be able to keep up the fight, you know. I mean, for me, for for my own well-being, in order to have any hope, all I feel like I can do is do what I feel is right for myself and live the way I want to live and have my garden and produce my food on a smaller scale and support the people around me that are that are doing that and try to unplug from the rest of it as much as I can. And actually, you know, collectively, that is having a huge impact, I think, you know. I've been watching the food movement really grow and, you know, the farming movement really grow. And I think it's growing to a point um, in Arizona where now the questions are coming up about, like, what is sustainable and, you know, wow, if we want to grow food locally for people, I mean, do we even have enough water to do that? Is it economically viable even on a small scale? You know, a lot of, I think a lot of questions come up. You know, and people see certain agriculture in Arizona and they think, wow, you know, that's not sustainable. Like, these orchards shouldn't be here. in in Cochise County, they shouldn't be sucking all of the water out of the ground. And, well, you know, there's a good argument for that. But at the same time, there's people that live in this area. And the people that live in this area obviously need to eat food. And in order for them to have food, we have to have some kind of agriculture. So if we can't even have agriculture here to support the people who live here, I think it just begs the question of, like, whether or not really... You know, pe- this many people should be living here at all. Um, anyhow, that might have kind of sidetracked what you're talking about, but I don't know. It's all it's all tied together.
2: So, so clearly, some kinds of agriculture are more suitable in an arid region than others, and and clearly, the ranch methodology, uh, ranch raised. Is part of that. Um, one thing that one thing that I am, need to be sure to mention is that there are some really awesome ranch jobs available right now. Um, one called the Sun Ranch in Montana. They just sent us um, a really amazing position for a farm ranch hand, uh-huh. and it's posted on the Greenhorns website, or or it will be by the time this radio show airs. Um what are what are your what are your professional goals um as it relates to uh sustainable ranching what are your last time we talked you were going and looking at the kind of enterprises that were happening um at the maroni ranch yeah have you have you moved the have you thought the next phase through in your kind of professional engagement
3: well It's a little too soon for me to say much about that. But, um, you know, there's, like I was saying, a lot of the ranching that goes on here is really just raising uh, cattle for, you know, the feedlots. And that's where it ends up being finished. So, you know, that adds a whole bunch of other inputs to you know, to the production of a product that is essentially, you know, pretty low carbon footprint, um, kind of, you know, a sustainable product from the start. So the question around here is, and the question that I'm still trying to find answers to is, how do we keep the product that is starting in Arizona, in arizona and finish it in arizona and how do you finish the cows on the range um... or perhaps on some kind of pasture that might be irrigated and and get a product that's good that you can market directly to local people in this area so that you know you're not having this you're not having adding all these miles and all these you know fossil fuels and grains and pesticides and antibiotics and all this other junk to something like that um, and you know I'm finding that the answers to that aren't really necessarily that easy and I think a lot of it just depends on the scale that you're doing things on and um, so there's a few people here you know Dennis Moroni's is one of them Paul Schwinnison is another one who are raising their own stuff and finishing it on their land and direct marketing that to people, and they're doing pretty well. Um, And I do think that there's room for more people to be doing that sort of thing. Um, And, yeah, that that interests me a lot. You know, I I do have an interest in living here and, and trying to do so in a way that relies you know, as much on local, available, sustainably produced resources as I can. And quite frankly, when you start dissecting stuff and really taking a look at it, that, that becomes something that's not necessarily so easy to do. Um, so, yeah, you know, I, I'm not sure. And um, as far as, like, the professional part goes... I don't know how professional I really want to be. (laughs) I just, um, as far as, you know, the the ranching or farming or food production stuff goes, um, I I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not exactly sure how I'm going to make a living and, um, do all of that. I mean... I don't know that I necessarily want to... I guess what I'm saying is that I don't know know that I necessarily want to rely on producing an agricultural product for my income. It just doesn't seem like the relationship that I really want to have with agriculture. Like, I enjoy it and I enjoy being a part of it and I enjoy doing what I do for myself and for the people that I know, but I don't know that I would enjoy trying to do that on a scale that actually, you know, could be the basis for a viable business and a living for me. I'd probably try and get my money doing other things.
2: Well, and that's a decision a lot of people are coming to. Not everybody, but especially in the startup years, that's definitely, that's definitely the case that in a supplementary income uh, is needed and and just to be clear, that's a lot of what is what is common in you know conventional production agriculture. Also, is that uh-huh. the majority of farm households rely on off farm income to support to support costs on the farm and to smoothen out uh, cash flow and provide health insurance, etc. So it's not you're not the only one. Is my point.
3: Right, and, you know, I just, I think that one of the most challenging things about it or the daunting thing to look at is, you know, doing something like that on your own. Uh, it's it's just too hard. I think, um, you know, going out to some place and investing every single thing you've got, energy-wise, money-wise, you know, credit-wise, resource-wise, into a place to try and get into farming or ranching, I don't know. There's not really much about it that seems like a very good idea, at least on your own, Um, as a collective with more people involved, with more people pitching in, um, with more diversity in what you can do and more opportunity to share the, the load and share the... You know what could end up being a burden that that seems okay, but um you know then it becomes really hard to find other people that share that vision that you' won't, you know who want to do the same thing, and you're good at finding people who want to do that um, and and that's great, and I think that there's other parts of the country where maybe there's more people who are concentrated, you know, and pitching in together. Out here, you know, I know a lot of people that want to do it, but, you know, they have their own ideas about where exactly they want to be. Getting everybody to agree on a place or a way of doing things is then the next challenge after you do find some like-minded folks. It's, It's pretty hard.
2: Nobody said it would be easy. Uh, no. Certainly not, in the, certainly not in the short term.
3: Yeah. No, certainly not. But, um, but, you know, whether this is something that people are recognizing as something they want to do right now or not, I think in the future we're going to have to do it. Um, I don't think that we are going to be able to sustain the system that we've got indefinitely and um, sooner or later there's got to be a time where people are gonna need you know need to be growing their own food again and being more self-reliant and being more in touch with the land and where their sustenance comes from so those of us that have that desire that are investigating that right now and that are trying to learn I think we're really ahead of the curve Um. I think it's something that people are going to have to start paying a lot more attention to.
2: So, it sounds like maybe even if it's hard now and that to break in is a challenge and taking the kinds of risks that you have to take in order to have a viable startup in farming are, are you know, you really have to be kind of a ninja in order to make that happen, but that taking those risks now and... It Puts you at the head of the field, as as it were, and puts you ahead of those who are not able to take those risks or not able to uh, to do it now, but who may be interested to join later. And you know, you see that over and over. In you know, somewhere like the Bay Area, you want to start an artisanal baking bread baking company, or you want to start uh, you know growing herbs for tea. While you know you're that market is already pretty well covered by someone who's been there going for twenty years. Whereas if yeah, you start sure. up in Kansas, uh you know, Kansas City, you're gonna have less competition and you can be the first one uh to the marketplace.
3: Yeah, sure. Definitely. Yeah, I mean I think there's much easier parts of the country to try and to try and do these things than around here um just because of the climate and the drought we've had and the water issues we have um i think a lot of people are i don't know i think reality's kind of hit and while it seems like while it seems like the drought that we've been having is this you know new thing this anomaly it's it's really not historically so um you know they know from looking at tree rings that there have been, there's always been, for as long as we can go back, these recurring cycles of, you know, moisture and drought. And drought is really more the norm here than the wet the wet times. So we might be coming back into a time, you know, of really, really long-term drought where the whole agricultural system and all of our civilization as we know it, um, you know, was built during, you know, a, a wet time, and it maybe isn't going to stay like that. So, we're going to have to reconfigure everything. And there's a lot of competition, too, you know, just for as far as the agriculture goes between developers and agriculture. I mean, and I was just hearing something on NPR about what's going on in Texas. They want to take all the water away from the farmers. So that they can keep reservoirs full for recreation, and you know, preserve the value of these fancy houses that are built in this area. What do you think of that? You know.
2: So, well, I mean, we're all used to, we're all used to kind of environmental issues getting shunted to the side for economics. But the question really is: At what point do the environmental limitations start to impact? Enforce a shift in economics and reevaluating some of the assumptions that we've had
3: right, well, you know you'd like to think that policy and government would sort of be somewhere in the middle of that stuff, um, doing its job to sort of protect the future and protect the people, um, but unfortunately, you know they're not doing much to help as far as Regulating growth and the type of growth that happens and things like that, you know, because there's too much conflict with the with the economic model that we're working in, and uh, I don't know <laughs> I don't know. it's looking pretty rough, but um but I think well, it's just going to be roughest on the people that aren't you, are. you know preparing and learning how to fend for themselves. Well, so there you have it. From the middle of the hot summer in
2: Arizona, where the rain hasn't yet come, from Anastasia with a very uh, realistic, realistic, and non-glamorous view of the world. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> uh, here, where we have a nice breeze, and the young farmers mixer on Thursday, and we have a garlic part on Wednesday. On there's basically young farmers' parties Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, and garlic harvesting, and those county fairs coming up. And So here it's a lot rosier feeling, but I think that might have to do with debris. Yeah,
3: man, that sounds really good. You know, part of my problem is I need to get out of here and take a little break. <laughs> I could use some well, green right now, some green and some water and a swimming hole and, you know, all that stuff. I've been choking on wildfire smoke and dust and, you know, getting heat rash and spider bites. And, well, it doesn't do much for my attitude, I guess. <laughs> well, get on a train and come visit. Okay. I'll try. I hope to sometime.
2: Okay, so signing out, this has been another episode of Rehorns Radio. Do check out our new stuff. We have lots of new stuff on the website. We have a book, 50 essays by Young Farmers, and we have our movie, our DVD is for sale for $25 for home viewing. And, well, what else do we have? We have the Almanac in production and Our Land in production. There's previews of both of those projects up on the website. So if you haven't been on there for a while, you may be impressed with the beautiful new layout. Done by Future Farmers, which is a graphics and art collective in San Francisco. Yada, yada. Let's do it. Bye-bye.
1: Thanks for listening to this program on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. You can find all of our programs archived on our website or by searching iTunes for Heritage Radio Network. You can find us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore Radio. You can email us at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization. To donate and become a member, visit our website. Thanks for listening.